Hi everyone, welcome to Behind the Scenes in Hell with Dr. Ron, a podcast that uncovers the hidden heroes and untold stories in the world of healthcare. I am your host, Dr. Rona Odigbe, or Dr. Ron for short, and I'm excited to take you on an insightful journey behind the curtains of the healthcare industry. I'm a medical doctor with a postgraduate degree in clinical anatomy and another in health informatics. I'm interested in healthcare technologies, innovation, patient care, informatics, and health content creation. In this podcast, we delve deep into the lives of healthcare workers, shining a spotlight on the dedicated professionals who work tirelessly behind the scenes to deliver exceptional care to patients. While doctors and nurses often take the center stage, there are countless unsung heroes who play critical roles in ensuring the seamless functioning of the healthcare system. From the skilled medical laboratory scientists and technologists who analyze samples and provide crucial diagnostic insights, to the compassionate medical social workers who offer support and guidance to patients and their families, we explore the multifaceted and essential contributions of every member of the healthcare team. Join us as we share stories of resilience, innovation, and teamwork that drive the heart of healthcare. We'll talk to healthcare administrators who navigate the complexities of managing a hospital efficiently. And we'll hear from healthcare researchers who are at the forefront of groundbreaking medical discoveries. Our podcast goes beyond the clinical aspects of healthcare as we shed light on the challenges and triumph of healthcare workers during the pandemic and beyond. We will discuss the mental and emotional toll of the profession and how these dedicated individuals find strength in the face of adversity while not overlooking those individuals who have pivoted into the non-clinical areas of healthcare and still contributing their quota to healthcare delivery. Behind the scenes in Hell with Dr. Ron is not just a podcast. It's a tribute to those who work diligently behind the scenes, often without recognition, to improve and save lives. Each episode will inspire you, leaving you with a newfound appreciation for the unsung heroes shaping the landscape of healthcare. If you're curious to explore the passion, commitment, and innovation that go into delivering quality healthcare, this podcast is for you. So tune in to Behind the Scenes in Hell with Dr. Ron and be a part of the conversation that celebrates the relentless spirit of those who make healthcare possible. It is my hope that with this podcast, we will shed light on these areas, improve patient care, and hopefully inspire the next generation of healthcare professionals, one conversation at a time. Subscribe now and join us on this enlightening journey through the art and soul of healthcare. Right. Hello, everybody. Good evening once again, and welcome back to another interesting episode on the show Behind the Scenes in Hell with Dr. Ron. And today we have an interesting guest in the studio, Mr. Jonathan Aja. And uh, we'll just be talking about medical education because that's like one of the alternative careers, you know, physicians, clinicians can actually get into if they want to. And uh, a lot of persons have been asking me, so here we are today. So let's dive into the conversation. You know, typically, I like uh, my guests introducing themselves, really. So I'm passing the mic to you, uh, Jonathan, to give us yeah. a brief about yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so I think in brief, um, basically, uh, in summary, I would refer to myself as an academic surgeon and medical educationist. Uh, I've also dived into my own business now. So I'm an entrepreneur, founder, 
and an innovator. And so I think that's basically not to give us a long-winded um, conversation about myself, but overall, <laughs> I'd um, worked and practiced in about three countries, four countries now. Um, so Nigeria, a little, mostly here in the UK, a little bit in Italy, and then in the US uh, um, as as an expert teacher, not physically, but I done, I've taught across these countries. Wow, that's um, how would I put it now. That's some you know experience under under your belt across these uh, countries. So, I mean, looking back now, what was the motivation for you to get into medical education? Um, I think the first thing is if, if I look out back at you know my time uh, and it starts, I think probably when I was a medical student, and if you look at the people that teach you uh some of them i remember them more than the others not because maybe the others were not good but uh, i think there's something about the way they were able to communicate knowledge that was just different Mm -hmm. and and that stuck with me and and i thought okay this is interesting um because one of the things is if you remember i think it was fella that said teacher don't teach me nonsense uh, so it's just uh, it's just very important who's teaching you something, yeah. and so and, and probably medicine it's 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 very important in that area. So I looked at pedagogy, and I always look at what I can improve. I like to approach things is uh, um, uh, in that way, and I I like to say I don't complain about anything I can't improve. I just don't see problems. I see problems and I see solutions. And I think uh, when I look at that and I always look at how can we make things better, how can we improve things? And and over time, it it started that way. Uh, In the long run, really, so I started to teach. So I've been teaching for a while. Um, And when I used to work in a hospital in in Kaduna, there used to be this uh, theater he was head of the theater perioperative nurses. And he would joke with me that, you know, you sound like a professor. I mean, he would commend my teaching. And I, I used to find it funny. I used to think, okay, okay, maybe he's just been nice. Yeah. Uh, fast forward, um, senior lecturer now. I've taught in five of the best medical schools in the UK. Two of those in Nigeria. I've taught for companies in the US and companies in Italy. And I am, I mean, the equivalent of the U.S. associate professor in in medical education. So I think he's, he was probably correct. But I always look at how we can, you know, just impact, deliver knowledge properly. Uh, and, and also the second thing that probably strikes me very much in terms of teaching is yeah. by uh, a Canadian surgeon called Ronald Lett. He's heading the Canadian Network for International Surgery. And he says, um, we need to stop teaching whereby when you teach something and the students are impressed, you've not passed knowledge. And the reason is you've demonstrated just how much you know it. So teaching should not be where a teacher demonstrates how much he knows it. Rather, it should be where a teacher passes so much of what he or she knows, uh, you know, to the student. And, and so those are 
some of the most encapsulating things I've, I have uh, to say in terms of uh, a medical education and my experience in it so far. Okay, that's that's interesting. Thank you for that. Now, you, you mentioned academic surgeon. So do you still see patients or is it now full-time yeah. teaching you do? No, I mean, I, I have um, privilege to have a honorary clinical contract. Okay. Uh, what would be that for uh, a registrar? In surgery that would be equivalent of a senior registrar in upper GI surgery in um in the in in the Royal London Hospital so they okay. gave me this little ID card okay badge. Uh, okay yeah so they gave me this little badge um mm -hmm. and so uh and I um and I really uh, like that and so that gives me the opportunity to do what they call clinical education. So some okay. uh, enthusiasts prefer to say the teaching that you do within hospital setting is clinical education, but really it's in terms of still medical education. Oh, interesting. So is there any really like distinct difference between clinical education and medical education? Yes. Um, I mean, okay. if you want it in the broader sense, so medical education is probably two parts or three parts. So there's undergraduate medical education, which is everything involving training someone to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, there's okay. postgraduate medical education, which is training someone that's already a doctor. So undergraduate uh, medical education is in the purview of universities. Um, mm -hmm. Postgraduate medical education, most times is in the purview of the colleges. They set the standards. And then you have continuing medical education. So that's for someone who's already qualified, but they want to keep their skills. More now, uh, Amy, the body that shapes medical education, is trying to move into a term called health professions education. Okay. It's a bit more en encompassing. And so it brings, so we can educate uh, people across. So like we educate vets as well. And they oh, also bring wow. in, yes, they also bring in their pedagogic practices to see how we can look at, um, and then nursing and pharmacy. It's a bit more encapsulating. But in the strictest sense, medical education is the education of medical students, doctors, and continuing education for doctors. But in practice, that would spread across the, you know, healthcare three. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. At least I've, I've picked one interesting thing today. That's nice. Thank you for that. Now, looking at the process for getting into medical education, was there any additional certification or qualification or training? I mean, was that step like? Yes, I mean, there's the um, uh, there is the there's some minimum standards that. Uh, uh, people would look for uh, um, it's becoming so the era where by default you you become a doctor and a teacher uh, mm -hmm. I think it's going away uh, yeah. it's uh, it's going away and the reason it's going away is uh, I personally do not like that model and if you look at the data that does exist that's yeah. probably why the experience, the learning experience of medical students and, of course, postgraduate doctors who, who are really learning something. And you can argue 
some people argue that they are students or not, but that's a debate for another day. Because if you make someone teacher by default, what you would find is who told you they are interested in teaching anyone? And so mm -hmm. much more now, there needs to be, there's credentialing in, in the UK system and most systems across the world. So when you become a doctor, most times people want to see, you need to demonstrate that you are interested in teaching. But beyond that, you need to demonstrate that you understand the pedagogic practices. Yeah. For instance, how do you deliver information? How do you ensure that learning up, um, environment is appropriate? Do you understand what's the community of learning? For instance, if you look at the community of learning in a hospital, the consultant would be at the top. top and yeah. then, for instance, the medical student or the nursing student or the pharmacy student is just coming in. Mm -hmm. How do you make their bridge across the time? Now, beyond that, how do you, how do you ensure that the time they spend is mapped according to the outcome. And if you look at, there's something called Don Moss level of, um, it's used for CMEs. And so beyond just giving someone information, we need to be able to say the information they are getting, how is it impacting patient yeah. and community care? Now, if yeah. someone, and this is something that someone needs to be trained to do, so that's one way of doing that is you could do uh, a PG SAT in medical education, okay. a PG diploma in medical education. You could, if you have the experience, you can use a portfolio route. So there's a formal route where you do some university qualification. There's a portfolio route. The portfolio route, the more popular one in the UK is the Higher Education Academy, uh, where you can enter as associate fellow or a fellow, and then you can do a direct application. You can do an application through, for instance, a certified route. Yeah. Uh, so that's one way. The other way is, again, that's that you can do is you can go through the Academy of Medical Educators, um, again, doing a similar portfolio route. I happen to have both. I'm lucky to mm -hmm. have both. Yes, I'm lucky to be a fellow of the Higher Education Academy based okay. on my portfolio in medical education in across Nigeria and the UK. And also I was uh, this year um, admitted as a member of the Academy of Medical Educators based on my portfolio here in the UK. So those are some of the routes that um, you would need. And of course, other things like demonstrating the domains of medical education. So teaching, assessment, faculty development, and of course, publication. Interesting. Now, some people talk about um, going for a master's in medical education. How does that fit in? It's good. So that would fall in the, um, uh, was it um, qualification route? But just doing a master's by itself yeah. does not demonstrate teaching practice. Ah, I so see. you need to demonstrate teaching practice, meaning uh, uh, whoever the assessor is, he, needs, he or she needs to be able to look at how do you prepare a lecture? How do you map the lecture to what the, the particular learner is supposed to learn? 
then what's the audit process? What's the peer review process? You know, what's the student's feedback or, or what's the learner's feedback on the delivery of what you've delivered? Uh, and then what, what do your peer think? So they do something called peer observation of teaching. So okay. let's say I'm teaching something, you would peer observe me and I can peer observe you and, you know, give you feedback, feedback. that you can reflect on. Just the way you have reflection in hospital, you reflect yeah. on your teaching about, teaching. you know, just how you manage time in your teaching. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when you teach, let's say you know the subject very well and you keep going over time. And yeah. that's something that needs to be addressed, isn't it? Let's say you have a class where students are unusually disruptive. What are your skills in managing that? Yeah. You know, uh, so those are, those are teaching practice, you know, just like when you become a surgeon, you, you don't just, you are not assessed on just your knowledge. Uh, you actually need to operate and have logbook and things like that. And you have yeah. to have another more experienced person look at it and say, we think it's in line of what we expect or not. That's interesting. So it, it, it really goes beyond just having an MSc in you know, medical education on to be able to deliver on the job as a medical educator? Yeah, I mean, in, in the strictest sense, it's not compulsory as of yet. It's okay. additional. Um, if you, because people would need to observe your teaching practice and see that, you know, how is it impacting the curriculum at, at, at all stages. So whether you are delivering undergraduate or postgraduate, or, you know, CMEs. For now, you know, even though I've criticized it before, um, for postgraduate, is a little bit different because once you become consultant by default, um, generally you, you are giving tra trainers privileges, okay. uh, which is something I think uh, should, uh, I mean, I'd suggested that there should be consideration that people shouldn't be trainers by default. I think the colleges think otherwise. Uh, and uh, my suggestion was maybe we should try two models. Because if you look at generally medical students, uh, you can argue that they have more power to decide who teaches them or not. Uh, mm. Postgraduate trainees, uh, not so much. Right. Okay, that's good. Then you mentioned uh, something about curriculum, right? As a medical ed educator, are you involved in curriculum development? At any yeah, 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 yes. Um, so it's one of the core areas um, if you want to be medical education. In fact, it's an area of expertise. Okay. Um, so there are many ways it would. So I'll just illustrate the undergraduate curriculum, for instance. Sorry. It's fine. So in the undergraduate curriculum, usually there would be, uh, there's a body that sort of sets the heartbeat, if you like. Okay. And so that would be the GMC. But the GMC mm. would not tell you the time to teach, how you would deliver. The GMC would tell you that, look, this is what we think the graduate outcomes would be. This is what we think is the guidelines for the facilities. This is what we expect that the students should know by the time they are going out. Now, you would need to operationalize the GMC's overarching goals and outcome. And therefore, usually, uh, you 
break it down into overall learning outcomes, intended learning outcomes, and weekly mm -hmm. learning outcomes. And you would look at the opportunities for teaching. And so based on that, you would expand and look at what should be covered. And then you would, there are many ways to do it. You can um, decide what has to be known, what should yeah. be known, what can be ignored. And so what's considered, for instance, mandatory and optional. So one way that you can get further help is, for instance, if you are thinking of anatomy, yeah. For instance, the Association of Anatomies, all of them have come together and say, you know what, we think this should be what should be covered in the undergraduate anatomy curriculum. So you can look at what they've done and, um, and, and see what can be improved. Yeah. But beyond that, there's something called curriculum development. So ideally, every few years, because you're an expert in the field or several experts in the field, you can look at what is what's come up, what can be updated, what can be taught differently from, for instance, the module review, the external examiner's report, and for instance, the feedback the students themselves are giving, and also from the performance of the student's exam. So you can, for instance, look at what is it that the students are struggling with. You can add that because that helps you to know the differential you know, it helps you to differentiate between high performing and, you know, the borderline candidate mm -hmm. and, and, and then all of those things. And you can develop the curriculum and you can think of the delivery of the curriculum. We're moving a lot now towards technology enhanced delivery and, and, and things like that. So curriculum development is a, it's a big area uh, of medical education where people specialize. Mm. I mean, this sounds like a, a lot of work, you know. I mean, I tell people to get into an area when you're on the, on the outside looking in, it looks like, okay, these guys, they're not... No, it's, really be, it's, beyond, it's beyond standing and um, just delivering tea. And I think once, you, the more you grow in, in the mm -hmm. field, actually, the less you teach. That's the interesting part. You spend more time, you know, crafting um you know things like curriculum mm -hmm. helping faculties develop reviewing curriculum for other people looking at um all of the frontiers how how the uh, how things are changing and improving and also um and, and and things like that so on and so forth that's helpful to know so now let's look at the your transition journey now you know moving in from clinical prior moving up from clinical practice i'm really hybrid so i don't know <laughs> i'm hybrid so okay. yeah but i mean I, i'm happy to talk for anyone that wants to transition people ask me this a lot so maybe it's good for me to address it yeah so, so if you the challenges you probably faced in quotes you know trying to get into this other part of your career really yeah. So I think the first thing is you need to decide whether you like to, um, um, you're someone that likes to look at improving how knowledge is delivered. I think that's the first thing uh, to do. If you are, then certainly you can transition, but it's a process, it's a skill. 
And mm-hmm. I think uh, most times when doctors talk to me, they say, you know what, you know, I was senior registrar, I teach the, 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 that, it, that doesn't carry a lot of currency, you know, in terms of when universities will hire you. It doesn't yeah. carry a lot of pedagogic weight. Why? There's not proper planning. When you so, if I go to ward round, someone asks me, uh, Tell me about blood transfusion in uh, open hernia, for instance. Yeah, it's not properly planned, so it doesn't carry a lot of currency in by itself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what carries the most currency in terms of demonstrating experience with teaching anywhere in the world is really. Lectures carry a lot of currency. Why? Because their preparation, the research, and delivery, you can test a range of teaching practice. You can be able to tell the person's expertise, how succinct they can deliver, and you can look at the student's reaction and planning. So the first thing is certainly you need to look at opportunities to deliver, prepare, and deliver teaching implement curriculum so that's the first thing the second right. thing is so you need to look at most times these opportunities exist uh but i think people also need to be um aware that if you're coming into something new you must be prepared to act like you really want it yeah uh, yes so so the thing is you have to look for those opportunities and they do exist the second thing is you must be willing to go through whatever process exists. So let's say they are calling for OSCE examiners or people to be trained as OSCE examiners. Of course, you must be willing to go through the inconvenience. Then credentialing helps, not because by itself it solves the problem, but it tells whoever that, you know what, I've, I'm interested in this. I'm committed to that. So those are the things. So depending on where you exist, but most of the trust in the UK, I mean, all over the world, when I was in JOS, I clearly, if you wanted to attend, the pro, I can list a number of professors that are happy for you to attend and see how they lecture, even though I didn't mm-hmm. like to attend it. But I mean, some of the professors will say, come, come through, see how I deliver the lecture, come and assist with examination, come and assist with invigilation, come and assist with marking. So start formalizing those things. In Nigeria, it does exist. So if you mark for the university, ask the head of department, could you write me a letter that says I've marked for X, Y, Z? Could you, you know, whatever process exists, could you look at my skill, you know, and tell me areas of development? And once you begin to have this, those, that's a, a step uh, that you can take. Okay. That sounds interesting. Then in, in terms of credentialing, so uh, assuming maybe there are specific bodies you probably have to register with or maybe write exams or something, can you throw more light on that? Yeah, so I mean, it depends on your field. Uh, the more credential you are in your field, it, it helps. Uh, so let's say you are public health physician or that helps. But that in by itself does not translate that you are a competent medical educator. Mm-hmm. So if you want, you can go through the qualification route. Most people opt to do a PG SAT. 
So if you are late in your career, you probably want to do a PG SAT in medical education where you understand, you know, all of the processes with, without outlined yeah. and you can pick where you are interested in. Um, if you are not late in your career, you probably want to go full range and to do a master's in medical education, which generally will teach you everything from okay. the core principles to medical education research. Okay. Uh, if you do not have the time and you think already I have enough in my portfolio, you can go through the portfolio route. Um, and I mean, I've, I've mentored people to get through a uh, fellowship or associate fellowship of the uh, higher education academy, which is called Advanced Higher Education now, is recognized everywhere in the world, certainly for sure in the UK, Australia, uh, Republic of Ireland, Canada, as clearly meeting and uh, the... Now, the other thing people miss is you can also do a master's in education because oh, okay. it's considered the same thing. Yes, yeah, so you can do a master's in education or do a master's in teaching practice, uh, just a regular teaching practice. Uh, or the other portfolio route is the Academy of Medical Educators. Again, recognized uh, in the UK for... Doctors, dentists, and veterinary surgeons. Okay. Wow. So that's, uh, I mean, there are so many ways to get into this um, space. Yes. You know? Yes. So <laughs> it, it, you have to look at um, where am I, you know, in my journey, and you know what works uh, for, for you. And, you know, if you want to do certainly medical education as a full-time career, uh, the master's is a good route, but experience would always, I mean, employers respect experience because it tells mm -hmm. them, you know, uh, and there's a lot of rules for, for in medical education. All of the colleges have clear rules um, that, for instance, in the UK, if you need a visa to come and do that in the country, they can yeah. do that. I can confirm that the Royal College of Physicians do have rules called um uh what educationist and senior educationist and and okay. some of these i think the rules are comparable to full-time nhs jobs oh interesting and mo yeah most of those rules are hybrid to manage their cmes um the royal college of surgeons have the royal college of um general practitioners have a lot of universities now have strictly rules for medical education to look at things from assessment to psychometrics to delivery to curriculum development. Uh, so it's something certainly that you can do full time. Uh, there's a lot of professoral chairs that you can have in medical education, clinical education and uh, simulation and well paid. <laughs> Because I remember mm. I was um, invited to apply for a role for a medical school in Dubai. And uh, I mean, I wasn't, um, and they, they said they, if I was successful, I was going to get, I think, £100,000 on tax per year. Wow. Yeah, so, um, so it's quite big. 
uh, and uh, because there's a drive to um, improving the way um, learners are taught. Yeah. No, I was going to touch on that later, but since you've just uh, mentioned it, so apparently, in as much as it sounds stressful, but it's also lucrative and uh, fulfilling. So, I mean, reflecting on your journey so far now, I mean, what would you say, like, your high points, you know, in this journey as a medical educator? Your most Could you say that part? again? Sorry. I think I, I missed... said, when you reflect back, you know, on your journey so far as a medical educator now, what would you say, like, are your high points or your most rewarding points, really? I found it in um, lots of things. Uh, I think the first time I got hired by the University of South Wales, uh, then who was my mentor. Uh, uh, it was a white guy named Dean Jenkins. Uh, and... Uh, and I mean, he taught me a lot. At the time I met, I, I mean, the first time I knew him was I'd written to BMJ, you know, BMJ, the, you know, the medical education part. And I, uh, I was living in Nigeria at the time. And yeah. I think he was in 2015. I still have the email. And I wanted to create, because I looked at, um, you know, trying to pass the West African exams. Yeah. And I, I thought resources didn't exist. I don't know whether they do now. But when you want to pass the primaries in, in the West African exam, at least for surgery, uh, you keep scavenging like all over. Like you keep looking for what would apply to the exam. And none of that existed. And I thought it was both a problem and an opportunity. And then I created something I call BMJ HISA. And I pitched it to them. Um, and they had a meeting with me, you know. Oh. Uh, they had a meeting, yes. So Dean and um, a lady named Helen, they had a meeting with me, you know, to explore my ideas. Um, we didn't, I mean, it didn't go forward because in terms of the marketability, the size and things like that. But it gave me the opportunity. I learned a lot um, from that. Yeah. Uh, so fast forward, uh, under Dean's mentorship, I created something called Pass List. You know, I started create. So he showed me, you know, just how to write an MCQ, how to map curriculum. Um, so that was the first time I started going into really medical education entrepreneurship because I thought I'd be rich if I made it, made some resource. <laughs> And and Dean used to play with me, yes. He used to play with me and say, because Dean Jenkins created on exam. You know on exam? Yeah, I heard about it. Uh, yes, yeah, so Dean, and he told me when he was my age, they created on exam. So on exam is the BMJ's version for pastors mm -hmm. or past medicine. So, uh, so he, so... So I had a wonderful experience uh, started. So that was really exciting. So when Dean moved to the University of South Wales as director of medical education, yeah, they had a rule for tutor in medical education. And then I just finished my first or second year as in, on the master's program for public health. And then I applied 
you know, to be a tutor on the program. I'd asked him, he didn't tell me he was sure, but he said, okay, listen, <laughs> how about you apply to the people and would we'll see what they think. Uh, to cut a long story short, the people came back and said, fine, we're going to try you and see. So they tried me. I started with writing MCQs and a very nice guy from Wales, uh, a guy named Freebury. I think he was a PhD student at the time. He taught me how to structure MCQs and things like that. And then I started writing and reading around a lot of things about differential attainment. So 2017, 2018, and all of the works of Professor Enes's Mill and uh, things like unconscious bias and it applies to the GP exams uh, and all of those things and how students perform. And from there, I moved to join the University of Dundee. So I'd applied to the University of Dundee to teach on medical education programs. So they'd interviewed me and said, you know, we, we're going to hire you. So but that, what was funny was, so there's a, a guy, he's retired now, I think your senior lecturer, Sean McNeil or something. And Mandy, Mandy, it's a um, uh, very nice lady. So both of them have said, you know, we're going to hire you. But for some reason, HR refused to give me a contract. Wow. <laughs> so I called them for, I think, about a year. I mean, six months, you know. And somehow they didn't give me, but eventually I still, I taught for the University of Dundee MSc Medical Education Program. Okay. I probably was the longest lasting tutor, serving mm -hmm. tutor. I taught for them for a year under a lady named, uh, and she was my referee for the GMC, uh, under um, Professor, what's her name? Uh, I would remember uh, Professor... Let me just, uh, yeah, so but, uh, she's the head of uh, postgraduate medical education yeah. program. So I taught under her for, for that time. And then um, then I moved to the UK full time okay. uh, in 20, uh, I mean, I had the contract in late 2020 uh, to teach at the uh, School of Medicine at UCLan. And I was there for about 18 months. Then I moved to Aston Medical School briefly. So at UCLan, I was module lead, okay. lecturer in clinical skills. And then Aston, I was a clinical teaching fellow in undergraduate medical education. Uh, and then I moved to Queen Mary uh, to do surgical education. So, um, and then I'm moving, uh, I, 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 I joined... Um, uh, the University of East London to lead the MS in uh, Physician Associate Study as senior lecturer and, and course lead. Uh, but of course, around this time, I'd done clinical practice. Of course, I'd also continued to, I gained my membership here um, okay. for the Royal College of Surgeons. I also gained um, a registration with the GMC and full license to practice. And I had the opportunity to um, also get um, uh, the Royal London uh, Royal London Hospital role. I mean, under my boss, I, I uh, for uh, it's Professor 
Bijendra Patel, uh, an amazing medical education, uh, world-leading expert in laparoscopic surgery. Uh, he's not just him, him, my other boss, Mr. Rajan, and Mr. Onstein, who is a retired surgeon. So under them, I really developed in surgical education and even surgical uh, practice as well. Uh, in Astin, I really developed under uh, a, plastic con a plastic surgeon and senior lecturer, uh, Sami Alani, and uh, Dr. John Deliu. He's an MRCS examiner in anatomy for the Royal College of Surgeons. So it's been an amazing experience. I just keep going, man. I, I don't know what else I would do. So Apparently, it looks like he, he are quite busy. Now, uh, I don't know what I'm interested in. I mean, are there specific skill sets that uh, someone will require in terms of, okay, I want to get into medical education? Are there specifics that I probably need to look out for? Because I know, I mean, every area of specialty usually have, you know, some unique skill sets that people probably need to be able to excel in those areas. I would say... I'll tell you what they told me when I went to work for the Italian company. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the recruiter asked me one question, <laughs> probably the most weird. And she said, if you were to explain to a five-year-old what you do for a living as a medical teacher, what would you say? Uh, and so I think most importantly, you must think of how to deliver the most complex things using the simplest methodology. And if you find a way of doing that, that's half the work. Okay. Uh, that's half the work. Um, that's half the work. So if you think of how can I, you know, pass on what I know um, to someone else, you know, using the simplest means. And interestingly, there are many things you can look at, you know, how people do it. You know, teaching needs to be interesting. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so teaching needs to be interesting. And and one of the, because when I moved to UCLan, uh, I did a few things um, uh, for a um, few things differently. I did a bit more freehand teaching. Okay. Uh, and the reason I do a more freehand teaching is I personally realize that I'm able to, you know, articulate concepts better. And, and so I moved a bit away from PowerPoint. The other thing is interactive teaching is really good. And, and one of the person I think that does this very well is, uh, is the late Professor Ronald Snell. He's, he's an anatomist and he has a lot yeah. of videos with uh, what's yeah, the name of the, the yeah but but if you and he's able to bridge the more areas of medicine you can bridge when you are teaching your subject the more people will find it valuable then people that have experience would use your material for revision the students will use it as entry and you know if makes the whole learning burden easier. So it's a few of those things. If it's, you know, coming in because you've got all of the qualifications within the field, that's good for, you know, getting into clinical work. 
Okay. But in terms of teaching, if you struggle with transferring your knowledge into the most easy and the most, I want to look at what this person is saying or listen to and remember, then, then I think um, you may, and of course you need to be able to innovate. You must rethink, you must um, reason, think outside of the box. One of the person I've been looking at recently is a guy named, I think Manny is on, is on TikTok. He does some very interesting uh, uh, science experiment. You know, he's, he's, he's British. What's the, yeah. he, he talks roadman. Uh, we take copper in it and we mix it with the potassium in it and this flame in it. And it's amazing science if you look at it. And mm -hmm. I probably invite him to do one of the science fairs. And one way to know that you teach properly is if, if children like it. If you can teach something and get children's attention, it's a good litmus test. Okay. Interesting. Um, so that that's quite, um, because that's another thing a lot of persons really struggle with, you know. I mean, when you're trying to do, ask yourself the questions, do I have the skill set to be able to, you know, do well in this area? So... I just thought it was worth them highlighting those areas. Then, uh, I mean, looking at if a doctor comes to you now and says, look, I'm trying to get into this area, you know, what, what words of advice would you give that person? Uh, I would say uh, it's good to be, it's a mixture of things, you know, um, people, so people that teach medical education, in my, in my opinion, or people that like academia, don't generally yeah. reason in a straight line. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so that's the first thing. So um, you would think about things in multiple ways because with mm -hmm. each learner, it's a bit different. So that's one. Uh, it's helpful if you, um, I mean, if it's, you can, your verbal delivery is good. It doesn't mean, I mean, I've seen people that have gone very far in teaching that uh, verbal delivery is not the most excellent, but yeah. some bit of verbal delivery, a bit of um, um, charisma in the Italian system. Uh, so when I went to teach for the Italian company, they gave me some classes in Java, and I, it was funny because, I mean, we don't do that in England. And, and then the professor of drama taught me something called presence energy. So okay. in the Italian system, uh, the teaching is, um, teaching is like acting. So when you are in, you are teaching a class or a lesson, yeah. there's some presence energy and the classroom is like your stage and so that needs to be taken into consideration and you know the the, the crowd needs to flow with you you know uh, and things like that and, and genuinely of course preparation uh the more prepared you are you know mm -hmm. um information flow and you have to look at what works and what doesn't 
Yeah, so there's really no hard and fast proof, per se. No, not really. There are, there are some um, usual suspects, if you like. Um, uh, <laughs> certainly, most schools, you want to prepare some sort of delivery material. Yeah. Uh, you want to also factor the level of learners. Um, and then you want to also, also look at the environment which you are teaching. And that way you can think of the pacing of the teaching. Um, so if you are teaching people that are advanced, the way you would deliver the material will be different. And then you must also try and feel, you know, the, the classroom and um, uh, look at that. But there's nothing, most importantly, be, be, ex, be it should be something that, you know, uh, you like I don't I don't think you do very well if you enter into teaching by accident okay okay so it has to be a deliberate decision to say yes um, I would think I would I think it's preferable at least in in competitive areas because the thing is the students at least as far as the UK setup is concerned the students have a lot of say in in the court in, in the teaching they are experiencing and so mm -hmm. if you don't like to have 10 lectures, 10 complaints that students don't like this or don't like that or don't like that. That can be, you get some, <laughs> but um, yeah, you get some, but, but um, now even if they don't give you um, cards, mm -hmm. at least you don't want them to give you complaints. So, uh, so if it's something that you really think, uh, but again, it's a skill that develops with time. With time, it's right? It's just like everything, a skill that develops with time. With time, um, and then you look at how to manage your time, how to, you know, and how to um, transfer uh, knowledge and things like that. So, looking at the uh, what do you call it now, global opportunities for medical educators, you know, because you earlier mentioned, I mean, you've been to Italy in the UK, I think you've had a stint in the US. So mm -hmm. is there really a global demand that much to warrant you moving you know, around these countries or how did that happen? I mean, you can move, but the thing is also you need to think about your CV. So sometimes when people send me their CV, it's a little uh, funny to me because you need to think about the pool, the cohort which you'll be competing with. And I think there's this error that people think that, at least now, everywhere in the world, um, you won't easily get a medical education role if you are just certified clinically. Okay. Yeah, because everyone that does the exam will, will get there. So, um, so that generally would not make you competitive. Because the, most, the best teacher is not generally the most brilliant student absolutely by default uh -huh. so so that's one so you need to say fine i'm a surgeon now how do i demonstrate that i'm teaching and there are a number of ways to make yourself more competitive i've talked about the i think the part we've not talked about much is um output so when you create um, um, 
all of this concept, you yeah. must also think of interesting way that your teaching can be consumed. It's just like music. You need to, you know, do a song, do an album. So one way is uh, you need to create some sort of teaching engagement, teaching activity. So that can come in workshops, the papers you publish. So uh, outputs or publications are key, especially if you want to go around the world because Whoa. most people would not have the time to look at you. They would look at the work you've done. So the first time I got to... Um, go to the Association for Medical Education in Europe, which happens to be the biggest medical education uh, globally. I'd created, so I'd done uh, the use of WhatsApp in teaching, mm. the management of patients as my master's thesis. Okay. Uh, under a, a lady named, she's, she's in Canada now, Barbara Jemik. She's a plastic surgeon. So I took that and created something called an Amy Fringe. A fringe is a funny way to teach people something. So we took the Marvel characters, you know, and made it a teaching point, and we presented it to Amy. And Abe, that was the first time we went to Amy. And Amy had, I mean, I had the opportunity to meet the president for the American College of Surgeons. I met yeah. James Gardin, who did the first transplant in Scotland. You know, it's a lot of, so that's one way. And the other thing is also, while I was in UCLan, I spoke to my line manager then, a guy named Collie Mikkel. And um, I had this idea about teaching cesarean section using Play-Doh. It wasn't my original idea. I'd seen a yeah. surgeon teach her son various surgeries using the modern son. So I now said we could do that. So we created a learning activity for children for the science fair. And it was so popular that the organizers kept, you know, they sent us the comment that the kids gave and it was amazing. So, and that also, you know, got more invitation. Of course, um, publication and things mm -hmm. like peer reviewing, and being editors for journals and things like that. Yeah. Generally, with that, you, I would say you would be fairly competitive. And whether you've got an American accent or a Scottish accent <laughs> or a Nigerian accent, most times nobody cares once you are... It uh, would I mean, deliver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of fulfillment now, would you say you're happy, you know, in this profession because that's another thing a lot of people look out for. i mean i would I, I don't know i i think um i mean my career I'd, uh i would say i've moved um if i done everything i wanted to I, i'm not sure everyone does everything uh mm -hmm. i think i'm lucky i've done a decent amount it's, it's amount, every yeah. field has you know like i'm hybrid so um, every field has its strength and uh, weaknesses, uh, but I think most importantly, probably everywhere you go, the principles are, are similar. It's hard work, patience, persistence, consistency. Um, and that way, whether it's general practice, whether it's business, whether it's and then it feels 
like there's something. Um, I think sometimes, in, in my opinion, people go uh, into fields with an assumption that one field is necessarily easier than the other. Absolutely, well, of course, yeah. each would have its own pressure. Mm. But I think if you calibrate the field according to what you want to do more, and then, of course, you play to your strength, oftentimes halfway. I mean, have I grown? Yeah, decent. I'd always end more money every time I change rules, uh, <laughs> which which is a good thing. So, and um, I mean, I, I'm happy. I taught in um, uh, University of Edinburgh, University of Dundee, Queen Mary University, London, Aston Medical School uh in italy us i think it's fair enough uh fair enough i think if i calibrate it um it's, it's i've grown but more importantly i have to say it's it, you need to keep uh, at least how i approach it is i keep an open mind every time yeah. uh, i look for what i can feel and i i i, I look at it that way uh, but it's 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 a rewarding field if, for those that want to do it. Yeah, I think that that word is very key. Rewarding field for those who are thinking or want to venture into medical education. Uh, now, looking back home, I mean, over the years you've garnered a lot of skills, expertise, experience, and all of that. Are there any plans of you know coming back home to you know? use all of this to improve they didn't our, hire me uh, is it <laughs> they didn't hire me <laughs> <laughs> in the spirit yeah. of giving back to to the country you know i mean i i, I do i do uh, i mean i do um things for like if they if they if they think there's a skill um that i have that would benefit for instance uh, the WHO um, emailed me and asked me to express an interest in a trauma committee because uh, uh, part of my expertise is global surgery. Uh, we've talked a bit with a few people. Mm -hmm. One professor in more recently in Mansag, we presented something called Endoman. I may not be able to talk too much about it, but we're, we're working yeah. to see how we can make uh, endoscopy, the training of endoscopy using simulation as cheap as possible. Uh, I'm lucky to have a little bit of grant uh, here in the UK to do that. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so um, someone in the Ministry of Health, uh, quite senior, is a professor and director's, uh, they said we can talk about that. Um, also, as chief medical director of one of the hospitals has also said we can talk about that. But still, they didn't give me an academic role while I was in Nigeria. So I don't think that was my fault. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to hear that. And I still uh... think they may, they may think I'm still too young to be senior lecturer in Nigeria. So I don't know. We'll find out. It's not my email is not it's not difficult to, to, to have my email. But I mean those are the two things we can. But I think the way we structure 
medical education in Nigeria. There's a lot of strength with, with our medical schools. Um, yeah. Okay. At least if you look at the, the, the products and the performance, uh, there's a lot of things we can improve. Uh, some of it is beyond the, um, the the problem, but a few things I think uh, can be improved with education overall in, in, in Nigeria. And one of the things is people should have access to student loan and student finance. Now, people, some people may not like that, but what it does is it makes the le it's an even level playing field for everyone. For everyone, okay. So that whether so you take out whether my parents can pay or not, and so that mm -hmm. would help, you know, uh, allow opportunity to spread across. Um, so that's that's that. Um, a few of the way, um, if you like. Um, in terms of access to things like journals and things, yeah. um, you have also need to look at um, whether, you know, the funding model, you know, you, our universities need to move towards um, generating money. But the argument, if I, when I speak to my ASU colleagues, is um, to whom much is not given, much cannot be expected. Be expected. Uh, and so, yeah, so, but those are two areas. The problem is if you charge the students more, that can be a problem, but you can balance that with student loans and then the university has a bit of more revenue. And, and I think that would make it fair. I mean, every country that has moved forward has some form of student loan. Otherwise, no. you have a lot of young people with potentials that would never get an education because there's just nobody to pay for it mm -hmm. you know or someone pays for it halfway some uncle some auntie or some church and then it's not sustainable so i think that 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 can change uh how far we can get it to be operationalized is a different conversation entirely entirely <laughs> The the problem most times is not like we don't have the ideas. It's usually you know hitting the ground running and implementing those ideas or solutions. That has always been. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think idea. we have some of the smartest people in the world. The mm -hmm. index is there to show it. I don't think thinking is the problem of 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 our country. Uh, most countries, yeah. there has to be a way where you know the vision is translated to a mission that happens. And if you look yeah. at countries that work and countries that, that's just the difference. But whether we can, I mean, we can even borrow people's thinking. In the, in the modern day and age, you can borrow someone's thinking. I was watching Arnold Schwarzenegger said he borrowed Tony Bless thinking to get the um, environmental law set up in California. Mm -hmm. So that's a Europe, you know, America collaboration where uh, politics is completely different. Um, yeah. I mean, the players need to allow, you know, the team play. So if the players look at it and allow it to play, I don't think think thinking has never been the problem of of Nigeria. Because if you go anywhere you go in the world, we, uh, I mean, if we're we're among the, if you say five, ten smartest people in the world. Mm -hmm. We're somewhere, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely somewhere. I agree with you. <laughs>
I totally agree with you. But when it comes to implementation of anything, I think maybe bottom 10. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when you have smart ideas that you don't implement, it goes to someone else. To do that, yeah, that's yeah. correct. Then um, in terms of, I mean, earlier on, you talked about you know interactive dashboards or something. So looking at the future of medical education, what are the trends you see happening and um, how do you get to keep uh, up with those trends? The what's this, There's a lot of technology now, uh, technology pushing the mm -hmm. pace. Um, there are lots of things we do now. People are... A lot of hybridization is going to... It's going to increase um also uh ronald haldine has talked about a concept called few rather than hybrid is fused so more and more now we are creating education that fuse clinical so for instance in our program uh we give the students a theater experience for live surgery live um um for instance, anatomy, teaching, and conversation. So there's a lot of tech that allows that now. And now even the operation, um, for instance, Metronics has made yeah. it possible for, for you to be operating in a different part of the world. Oh, yeah. And um, for someone else who is a proctor or whatever, live to give you real 3D uh, information because they've got uh, Google Glass, which has been here for a while. Mm -hmm. But what it does is Google Glass looks at the operating field, whether it's open. If it's open, Google Glass comes in play. If it's robotic, it's even easier because then you take the video capture from the robotic screen and it goes into... So a lot of that will... Simulation would increase and it's becoming more and more possible now. Or there are simulators already that mirror, you know, like the real deal. Uh, for robotic surgery, uh, I mean, in Queen Mary, we have uh, the Da Vinci simulator. And so it is allowing people to come into the lab and start developing that high-end coordination as young, as early as possible. At least one of the consultants brought his 11-year-old Wow. <laughs> and he was convincing me that you see that's why the college should allow people to move from open to robotic of course the college wouldn't see it that way because it's complementary isn't it? but i mean the point yeah. he's making is certainly from medical education is saying if you look at just like anything sport or whatever mm -hmm. uh, simulation is allowing people to develop their skill especially psychomotor skill as early as yeah, possible. Yeah. And for a profession like surgery, radiology, interventional cardiology, that can, that can be an advantage uh, looking at, you know, for instance, musicians and the way they train them. So by the time the child is 14, they mm -hmm. already have, you know, and then yeah. if they really get to do robotic surgery, Probably it would be an advantage, but we we can't say for sure yeah. how much that would translate. We would need a bit of years, but that's a um, lot of that is coming in. 
um, in India, at least, they are also pushing, you know, to use technology transfer to create their own robots. That's an area I'm interested in. You've asked what, what I would do. So I'm looking at um, uh, minimal access, creating models with uh, really parts from on the ground in Nigeria. I'm still figuring out how that would work out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we'll see. I don't know. But I'm figuring out how that will work out. But hopefully we can be able to bring all of the lab trainers, boxes, endoscopy, mm -hmm. and then all of these um, other things to see because um, there will be a lot more. Um, more and more procedures are done using robots. It has some of its own drawback. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. It's it's quite exp resource intensive. And so you must factor that vis-a-vis -vis, and the learning curve can be quite long. And the other thing is, if it, if it, if someone does robotics, over time they may de-skill in other things. So again, you have to factor that. If you say, uh, yeah. yeah, so they may de-skill de de in open surgery. So you need to balance that to say, you know, what where, what part of the world where, and and what's the extra gain, mm -hmm. you know? Let's say robotics probably increase uh, life by maybe a few days you know it may not be and if you look at the cost and you count so it will vary from place to place yes, i think yeah. really that's the moral of the story but those those simulation is becoming quite big and i think i mean our own medical education in nigeria would significantly need a lot of simulation boost but cost is a problem um, and I've talked about the model of how students get into university. Um, I mean, I think it's about time we strongly consider student finance uh, so that the, the, the ground is, is, you know, it's level for everyone. I mean, of course, people go into loan to, to but education is an investment. Um, and I don't think it would take you back. Mm -hmm. That's that's I, I I totally agree with you and um, well I think that's for the the people who are leading to to figure that out how to you know, give access to student loans and figure out how that will work because we we really need that to happen like yeah. you said I mean a lot of people out there because of funding they can get the opportunity to get a decent um, education. Yeah, I, mean, I think maybe if you if you look at the research, maybe 60, 70 percent. Yeah, certainly more than 50 percent. Uh, but I'm I'm more leaning now in my career on implement like like the creative part. So I innovate. So I'm strongly looking at um, seeing, you know, how we could uh, support with the hardware. And then a yeah. bit of maybe software of medical simulation, you know, across the Nigeria. But I mean, I'm not sh exactly sure how that would work. Uh, <laughs> but we're looking to try it a little bit. Let's see how the Endoman does, um, yeah. and see, you know, um, you know, just how it is, uh, whether we can offer it at a cost, which um, 
uh, uh, one, create it with, from resources within the country. So that way it's, it's affordable to, and then make it as durable uh, as possible. possible yeah. And yes, and see how simulation can, can come. That way we can have a lot of our own uh, people learning minimal access robotics. Um, as, as, as far as I can tell, already in India, they, they've made, they are Indian-made robots now, surgical robots, uh, uh, which is not really an easy feat. Because if you look at the creation of the brain of the robot and just tech, you know, and the fine movement that the robot does. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only way you can develop that is if you start creating something from the scratch. And of course, we have That's to. Right. Um, and then we have to teach people to have that habit. Um uh, rather than assume that if you start something this month, by next month, you would have something big. Uh, no, <laughs> it would take about five years, six years, seven years. And then that way, you can have a better deal, even if you mm -hmm. are collaborating with someone, because you have some of the tech already, isn't it? And so yeah. even if after some years, for various reasons, the climate is not good for Siemens to continue to do the deal. You already have, you know, people from within that did learn the skill. And, and that just keeps, skill, yeah. you know, making the economy grow. And it just many other advantages uh, around that. Hmm. It's it's um, just conscious of time. I mean, it's past one hour mark. And, uh, I mean, I still have lots of questions, but conscious of time. Uh, it's really been an interesting session with you. So I think, yes, uh, I can now beat my hand on the chest to say, yes, medical education is actually a very good area to be in. Because the, the thing that you struggle with, or a lot of persons struggle with, you know, you, you hear of certain areas and you're thinking of getting in there, but you really don't have anybody to look up to. So is there anybody in this area Area I'm trying to get into? What's the experience? What's the journey like? You know, a lot of people are groping in the dark, sort of. So, but I mean, here we are today. So you are testament that, yes, it does exist and it is fulfilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should, I mean, we, we, we could, uh, there are a lot we can talk about, also have other people I think that mm -hmm. it's one interesting thing is, is always um, experience is um, it's really good because it give uh, people the opportunity to, you know, the fine details uh, and yeah. then they can easily make a more clear decision. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, it's difficult to walk from an abstract, <laughs> completely abstract, to to reality mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean if you want us to to do more um uh have more conversation no problem yeah definitely and then we we'll, we'll find time to you know because i get these questions a lot all the time because part of what i do is you know i just talk about a lot of alternative careers that people can potentially look at then the mm -hmm. next question is is there anybody in that field i could look up to or talk to or have a chat to really you know 
talking to somebody who who has gone that path is different from just uh clicking on google reading about medical education and sounds all fancy but when you get in then you see it's a different kettle of fish and tal you know yeah because google is going to tell you everything is good <laughs> exactly he's <laughs> going to tell you i mean it's it's amazing you 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 just get in and get to the top uh, <laughs> yes and then i think i personally think the time for a linear or a monolithic career is probably dying or if it's not mm -hmm. dead already so it's it's important to have um as diverse a career as possible because yeah. that's that's probably an important negotiating factor uh yeah that's an important negotiating because i mean you it gives you the opportunity to to have more uh, employers and there's nothing that... better than more suitors isn't it which <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, translates to more money the, yeah the it, it helps you negotiate power. too yeah aha uh -huh. it helps you negotiate uh because uh, sometimes again it varies for people but i don't know a lot of things that if you do over and over again you begin to everything starts looking the same uh, yeah, but yeah. there's always a way to recharge if you have you know some so some days i'm in the hospitals in theater and then i missed teach and then i'm teaching i miss theater and then sometimes i'm just creating something um like we've just created hopefully it gets accepted uh we're going to do a public engagement with uh, demystifying tommy talk abdominal plastic using play-doh and mm. we're going to use real body art anatomy and we're going to do that live so we're going to have someone their abdomen you know describe the anatomy map it and i, I got an artist one of my former student uh lady and a doctor from india she can draw we're going to do that live and then we're going to do an actual play-doh anatomy uh abdominoplasty and look at the muscle and show people how i stitch up uh, for a workshop we proposed it to amy it's going to take place in switzerland i mean they've not said yes but so these are some i mean it can have a way of refueling yeah. in, in, and i think we should talk more uh, I mean, I've also tried to explain. To, I mean, speak to them in Unduk. I shouldn't be saying this live. But I think <laughs> there are a lot of things they can come and talk about on your show. Right. You know, yeah, from, from some of the things we disagree on on the platform, we can have a respectful debate. Uh, we can have a respectful, uh, educating conversation. A couple people with varying ideas, you know. Yeah. Uh, from everything around um living overseas to the ones that don't talk about relationship money you know and um you know when people people can you know it, it we should uh so hopefully i'm saying this for them hopefully <laughs> they, they come I hope they are watching too <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll drop your let me see if it's there so for those watching, you guys can reach him on his email. This is it on the screen. And uh, I'll drop a link to the description where you can you know, book for a one-on-one -on -one session with him to maybe you're looking for more clarity. You probably have questions that we might not have covered. 
video. So I'm going to drop that link in the description. Then you can have that one-on-one -on -one session with him. And uh, hopefully we'll still have more of these conversations, really. I mean, there's a lot to talk about for people to you know understand about different things, really, about across different careers, really. So uh, that's it for me. Any final word from you, uh, Doc? I mean, I just say stay inspired. You know, I, I like to say when I wake up in the morning, I just I probably believe in three things. I believe in God, I believe in myself, and I believe in the process. And I get back to work. That's just what I do. Um, and um, it works. You know, you have to uh, believe in God because there are things that are certainly... I mean, if you believe in God, but if you do or you believe in a higher power or whatever, but I believe in God, and so I believe in God because there are things that are outside your control. You need to believe in yourself because it's the cheapest form of validation. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. the cheapest form of validation. So if you're looking for external validation, what is important is it takes a long time for external people to be willing or bodies to be willing to validate you. And then you need to believe in the process and then look at what you are doing see what you can improve it takes a long time to be successful in anything it, it takes a, a long time so that of course patience and persistence and um also take feedback both from yourself and from others and then see how you can improve and then of course reach out and speak out um be proactive uh, being proactive helps a lot if you keep asking, interestingly, not a lot of people have said no to me. And I've, and I've actually emailed some of the most successful people medically, even while I was living in Nigeria. Nigeria. Lots of them have not said no. But of course, um, if you are looking for something, being proactive, you know, ask, reach out. The worst the person can say is they would ignore the email or say no. No. And then, of yeah. course, that helps you to say, I, I move to the next person. Or it next gives person. good feedback. You go back and look at your process and say, okay, what's from this feedback? And sooner or later, it begins to just, you know, tie. And I mean, I, I interviewed for senior lecturer role three times. The fourth time, I, wow. I had a feeling that I would be hired. Yeah, the fourth time I had a feeling like that I would be hired. And the reason was um, I looked at what I think I didn't do well. The first time, I didn't think I, de I dealt with the leadership question properly. <laughs> so when we got to this leadership, I said, this interview has problems. <laughs> In my <laughs> mind, I knew that this interview had problems. And then so the, the, the last time, I was like, how do I take the bar of my candidature? And what happens is really when you gain experience, how do I take the bar of my candidature that I think anyone coming to interview for that role, whatever they bring, is either they are at par with me or they are below me, mm -hmm. at least in my mindset. And I looked at all the skill set I had, the time I was given and the way I delivered it. And, yeah. and I think I was very close to my plan or if not above, because it's training too. I think yeah. some people don't understand. If you don't apply enough, it's, it's training. 
It's if you training, don't attend yeah. enough interview, it's training. If you don't do a lot of mocks, it's tra- you are not getting the training you need. So these mm-hmm. are the, the things. So some people have this... They, because you have to be at a particular level before they pre-agree contract with you. Yeah. Uh, you need to be like a Nobel Prize winner or something that they come keep you in the room and say, Ronald, if we <laughs> offer you this room... <laughs> Because sometimes people speak to me, it's just funny. No, you have to be like a the Nobel Prize winner or someone they know that just when they hear that you've come to the university, about yeah. 2,000 students will just transfer and join you. <laughs> so, you know, if we offer you this, will really accept. You, mm-hmm. you get me? And yeah. then, uh, but otherwise, you need training, you need to keep, you know... Uh, that's I think the best way to prove yourself is to have something out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has to have something. You know, you may keep saying, What do I have out there that is showing? And the interesting thing is when you you know you you have really if work with a lot of people and they scrutinize your paper or your workshop, they'll milk the <laughs> Huh? <laughs> when they squeeze, you know, the one we present in Mansag, they made me review it like three times. And I was awake like 1 a.m., like three days in a row. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, in fact, w- before I started presenting it, every other person has presented, nobody was standing. Everyone was standing and was watching me. So it just goes to see, show how you know, other people's voice can really raise the bar Yeah, whatever you've created. Hmm. That's an interesting, really. So it's been an amazing conversation. Like I said, we'll still have more of these, you know, conversations, really, because people are looking for insights, people are looking for clarity, people are looking for direction, people are looking for guidance, really. And um, it's for those who have gone ahead of the game to actually, you know, provide those little um, resources of help, if I, if I can call it um, that way. So thank you guys for watching, and uh, hopefully I'll be back next week again with another episode. And thank you, Doc, for sharing some of your time. You know, it's very expensive. No, no problem. No problem. In this UK, my pleasure. But, uh, we don't have money to pay you guys. <laughs> no problem. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. Just. We have come to the end of another captivating episode of Behind the Scenes in Hell with Dr. Ron, and I hope he has left you inspired and enlightened. The dedication, compassion, and expertise showcased by these unsung heroes of healthcare deserve our utmost admiration and gratitude. We want to extend our heartfelt appreciation to all healthcare professionals who work tirelessly day and night to provide exceptional care to patients. Your selflessness and unwavering commitment to improving lives are what makes the healthcare system truly remarkable. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. Your feedback is invaluable and helps us continue bringing you engaging stories from the heart of healthcare. In the coming episodes, we'll continue to explore diverse roles and contributions of healthcare workers, share more inspiring stories of resilience and innovation. 
We'll also delve into critical topics such as healthcare disparities, mental health in the medical profession, and the future of healthcare technologies. We will also tell patient stories as we have realized they are the reasons why we do the work that we do. If you have a story you'd like us to feature, a healthcare professional you'd like us to highlight, or a patient stories that you would like us to tell, we'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on social media or through our website, or better still, drop us an email and let's continue the conversation. Remember, Behind the Scenes in Hell with Dr. Ron is not just a podcast. It is a celebration of the remarkable individuals who form the backbone of our healthcare system. Join us on this journey as we shine a light on the invaluable work they do, often with little recognition, but with boundless impact on patient lives. Thank you for being part of the community and for supporting Behind the Scenes in Hell with Dr. Ron. Together, let's amplify the voices of healthcare workers and patients and ultimately celebrate the unseen efforts that drive the heart of healthcare. Until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, and stay connected. Take care, and I'll see you soon in another episode of Behind the Scenes in Health with Dr. Ron. Bye for now.